electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange this hour. I'm Kelly Evans. The chase into year-end, the momentum and growth ETFs continue to hit all-time highs as investors squeeze every last drop out of this year's winners. Will it all come to a screeching halt in January? We'll ask. Speaking of momentum, Bitcoin soars to new highs. Extending a wild rally the past few months, we'll speak with a crypto provider for PayPal about what's really driving this demand. And IPOs are part of the MOMO. 65 tech companies made their public debut this year, raising $39 billion. Can names like Instacart and Robinhood keep the strength going into next year? We've got a preview, but let's begin with the check of the markets this hour. Dom Chu has that for us. Hi, Dom. The color of the day, Kelly Evans, is green. A lot of it on the screens today. The Dow Industrial is currently up just a modest 105-point gain. Not that bad. It's about a third of a percent of the upside there. The S&P, 37.16 the last trade there. Half a percent gains as well. And the Nasdaq, 12,739 for the composite index, leading the way over half a percent gains. By the way, gold stars here go to both the S&P and the Nasdaq. They both hit record intraday levels so far today, as well, by the way, as the Russell 2000 small cap index. Uh, what are the bigger trades people are watching today is what's happening with the home builders, specifically Lennar, because it came out with better than expected numbers for profits and revenues. That's helping to drive this particular ETF that tracks the U.S. home construction market Right now to a 3% gain, you can kind of see here there's been this kind of consolidation move in recent areas and months. So we're waiting to see if that kind of breaks out for those home builders to the upside. And speaking of more green and momentum, you mentioned the Bitcoin. I just want to show you one measure of it. This is the Bitcoin price for coin metrics up 11%. That's off the session highs today. At the highest levels, we were north of $23,700 per token. At the lows during the pandemic, it was below $5,000 per token. So look at that. Over four times, nearly five times return in just that amount of time. We wonder whether or not things are bubblicious, but take a look at that sharp move higher. It's giving many investors out there some pause. I'm glad you guys are going to be talking, Kelly, later on about what's driving some of that demand. It sure feels very bubblicious to a lot of folks out there. Back over to you. We're going to talk about it right now. Dom, thank you very much. Dom Chu. High-profile investors ranging from Stanley Druckenmiller, founder of the Duquesne Family Office, to Bill Miller of Miller Value Partners, to billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones have all showed support for Bitcoin this year. And that's opened the floodgates for institutional money to start pouring in. And this week, Scott Miner, the global chief investment officer at Guggenheim Partners, he said Bitcoin could sort of $400,000 if you thought today's gains were a lot. Can Bitcoin live up to the hype? Joining me now is Charles Cascarilla, the co-founder and CEO of Paxos, the cryptocurrency partner for PayPal. Charles, it's great to have you. And um, listen, I mean, should I let's say I just am somebody whose pension fund has now, you know, a half a percent or one percent allocation to Bitcoin. Should I should I be comfortable with that? Well, I mean, look, I think having a small allocation to Bitcoin is something almost everybody should have. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's really thinking of it as a call option. The point of owning gold uh, is because you want to have a store of value. The point of owning Bitcoin is that it could become gold. And so we don't know exactly if that's going to happen. It's possible it might not. 
But on the other hand, it's been around now for 12 years. It's lived through a lot of turmoil, a lot of tests. It's the best example we have of digital gold. And what we've seen through COVID is that people's lives are more and more digital. They're online. They need to have a digital store of value. And just as importantly, uh, everyone has seen what's going on with the Federal Reserve balance sheet, and people are looking for ways in which they can protect their assets. And so Bitcoin is an example of one way to do that. Absolutely, Charles, although it's interesting to me that in some ways it's it's quite simply the herd mentality where people realize, okay, there's going to be 21 million of them. Uh, Bill Miller made this great point. He said, there's 47 million millionaires in the world, and there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. So in other words, if every millionaire on the planet just wanted one, they couldn't get it. There's not enough. So, you know, it's just a herd thing where everyone realizes, oh, okay, this is going to be the thing to own. And so we all better own it. And from that point of view, the sky's the limit, isn't it? Well, I mean, look, you know, that's certainly one way in which the price goes up. Uh, You get a lot of people buying something that has a finite amount. But on the other hand, there is some fundamental uh, relevance to what's going on here, which is that there is a need for a store of value. There's a need for uh, a purely digital store of value. And that's what Bitcoin represents. And so there's, of course, other um, ways that could happen. And it doesn't need to necessarily be Bitcoin. But so far, nothing has come along that's better. And so this is a real chance to own something at the early stages of a transformation. And really, you're going now from an early adopter community to the mainstream. And I think that's partly what PayPal enabling us for their users is is bringing to light. There's maybe 40 or 50 million people that were involved in the Bitcoin ecosystem uh, up till now. And instead, we're going to go to something that looks like billions of people over the next year. That's a huge shift. And to your point, that's actually part of the bull case for Bitcoin as well. This idea that so much of the supply right now, and remind me, how many current uh, coins are there? Well, I think there's uh, maybe 18 million. I forget off the top of my head, but roughly. We're almost all the way through the minting process. Yeah. Right. So we've already minted 18 million and there's very little left at this point. And the bull case is also that so many of those coins are owned by retail aficionados with pretty low turnover. So if you're, you know, part of the institutional investor class that wants access to Bitcoin, it's kind of like a hot IPO that only puts a sliver of its shares out on the market. There's, there's, there's just not a lot of available supply. I, so it, I, I just wonder if this, this supply-demand mismatch is the whole story. And it's fascinating to me, Charles, because this all comes back to a mysterious creator who we're all just hoping has this thing fixed at 21 million. I mean, what if it's not? Well, I mean, I realize that, you know, we, we, we've been asking these questions for 10 years, but um, yeah. the whole story is just so strange uh, if you really look at it. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of fascinating things about the story. At the end of the day, the pub, the, the code itself is publicly open sourced. You can look at it. And so 21 million is a hard cap here. Now, um, you know, you think about institutional investors coming in. That is the real story right now. Um, it's very exciting to see uh, this asset class go from an early adopter community to mainstream. That's why everyone got involved. That's why we created Paxos, which was we want to facilitate that move from early adopter to mainstream. Uh, PayPal coming in, Revolut coming in. There's going to be a lot of other very large institutions coming in in 2021. Um, this is just the tip of the iceberg here. And like you said, I mean, there's a finite amount of supply. That's what makes uh, Bitcoin ultimately be valuable that you know that there can't be more printed of it, that you know it's always going to be there. Mm -hmm. And that's a real use case. That's really needed right now. Quick last question, uh, because I I love this. You're you're so knowledgeable about it. So, you know, 
at what point, well, now the question has escaped me. There's, there's so many different things that I wanted to ask. I guess it was this. Let's say that you're somebody who owns a Bitcoin, whether you're a retailer, especially if you're institutional now and you've got a ton of money riding on this. You know, what's the guarantee that that can't be hacked or that you don't have some government or authority come in and just say, you know what, we're just not comfortable with what we're seeing here and, and you know, we're taking that away from you. And it's unlikely it happened in this country, but it could happen in others. What would you say to those uh, who are concerned about it? Well, there's a number of components there. I mean, I think it's important to realize Bitcoin is still early stage. Uh, this is not a guarantee that it's going to go up. Um, there's lots of things that could happen. But now it's been around for 12 years and the Bitcoin code itself has never been hacked. So you have a $400 billion bug bounty program and it's not been hacked. People have lost their keys. It's kind of like, you know, forgetting the code to your safe deposit box. Um, you know, so that can happen. But the actual core code itself has been remarkably resilient and remarkably secure. And certainly um, regulators and governments could come in and uh, change rules. And that's always a risk. Um, you know, I think that uh, at the end of the day, this is private property in the U.S. We respect that. Other places they don't. But the beauty of Bitcoin is that it's electronic and it's self-sovereign. That means you control it and you can move it around if you want. And so in some ways, this is a great way to create freedom in a lot of countries where they don't have it, where financial freedoms are regularly taken away from people or property is confiscated. That's part of the key use case here for something that's digital gold, not physical and can be confiscated right from you. Yeah, for sure. Although those authorities say, well, no, we don't want those freedoms. Uh, so we'll, we'll just see where this yeah. is going to be playing out, I think, for a very, very long period of time. Charles, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate yeah, it's it. It's great being on. Thank you for having me. Charles Cascarilla is the CEO of Paxos. Let's keep the momentum going. From Bitcoin into stocks, it seems to be all about high-flying names into the end of the year right now. Check out the Momentum ETF. It's at an all-time high. It's up 80% from its pandemic low. Take a look at the top holdings by weight. It's a lot of the usual suspects. Tesla hitting another all-time high today. Also the tech giants, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and NVIDIA. My next guest, three growth picks, are among these ranks. Joining me now is Jerry Castellini. He's the president and chief investment officer of Castle Arc Management. Jerry, it's good to see you. I mean, do you want to just offer a kind of a broader comment on the rush into year end, into Bitcoin, into some of these mega IPOs, into some of these uh, companies like Tesla that I just named? What is it telling you? Well, it, what it tells us, and, and you think about this, Kelly, it, we've never been in a situation before where there's this much cash or something like cash sitting on a sideline in front of what is a really high probable explosion in economic activity around the world, right? There's just too much uninvested capital. So the first places they go are to speculative things like Bitcoin, and the next place they go are to tried and true growth names like the Teslas, like the Microsofts. The fact that they're going strong all the way into year end probably reflects that, okay, I have to buy something, that'll be it. I think our bigger question is, what about some of the things that could happen in January and uh, the rest of the winter? And what do we do after we, we see this uh, move in, in moving some of that capital back right. into the markets? Absolutely. And, and, That's the trillion dollar question at this point. Jay, let me just ask you about the dollar. You know, I don't want to overlook what's been happening there sure. the last couple months as well. And so everything priced in dollars has to go up if the dollar's weakening. Dollar index broke below 90. It's a key level psychologically, although probably 88 and a half is, is more around the six-year low that, that we're eyeing. Um, but still, you have stocks going up, home prices going up, Bitcoin going up, playing cards going off at record yeah. prices. Is that a large piece of what might be going on with this whole momentum trend, or is that kind of a side story? 
Well, here's the way to think about the dollar. The simple way is uh, the dollar was strong through the better part of the last decade simply because the U.S. economy was the best place for someone to make a dollar investment. Our economy grew better. Our economy had a more stable financial system. If you remember, there were parts of the world economy you wouldn't trust uh, with anybody's money starting uh, right around 2010. Think about what's happened over that time frame, though. All those economies have have now recovered. They've built back into themselves some much greater stability. The U.S. has done fine. But what's interesting is how much the non-OECD nations have now begun to recover from COVID. So China, uh, India, Brazil, those are economies that are actually lapping years, uh, last year's growth rates. And <laughs> you, if you think about that, it only makes sense that investors will now start to broaden out their dollar investments into some of these economies. And I think it also gives you a, a yeah. great thought about what will happen in the United States, because we will end this with our vaccine and we will be in probably as good or better position than those other economies. So I think there's this, there's two waves of, of growth coming that will impact investors. It'll first surge into the overseas markets and then it'll flow back in the United mm -hmm. States and wait till you see what happens to some of the cyclical names as we move into uh, the winter and spring of next year. Yeah, and I'll have to leave it there, Jerry. We have some news coming in, but just so everybody knows in your portfolio, while I mentioned you have names like Microsoft, Tesla, and NVIDIA on the growth side, you do like Valero, MasterCard, and Las Vegas Sands on the cyclical side as well. Appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you so much. No problem. Jerry Castellini of Castle Arc. The news I mentioned is on Google. Deirdre Bosa has the story for us. What's going on, Deirdre? Well, Kelly, Google has now been hit with its third antitrust lawsuit in just a few months. This one is coming from it's being led by the Colorado attorney general and a group of 38 states and territory. The suit claims that Google, we've heard this before, has illegally maintained a monopoly in general search and search advertising through anti-competitive conducts and contracts. The AG, Phil Weiser, said at a press conference not long ago that the group would be filing a motion to consolidate its case with the Justice Department's recent lawsuit against Google. So, Kelly, the pressure continues to build, particularly on Google amid heightened antitrust scrutiny of big tech. Remember that just yesterday, a group of 10 Republican AGs sued Google, targeting its ad tech business and allegedly an illegal deal with Facebook. We're already seeing some reaction from some of the smaller rivals that have hit out hard against Google over the last few years. Yelp says that Google's betrayal of the web directly harms consumer. So we can see that Alphabet shares are down about eight tenths of one percent. We should remind our audience, too, that this has been an underperformer when it comes to those fang names, but also the Nasdaq. Back to you. All right. Deirdre, thanks for bringing that to us again. The third now for Google. We appreciate it. Coming up, shares of Papa John's have been red hot this year as delivery sizzles amid the pandemic. The stock is up nearly triple, more than triple. A look at that 208% from its lows. We're going to speak with the CEO about the consumer and what next year could bring. That's in just a moment. And home flipping falls to a four-year low as prices skyrocket. But if you've got an iron stomach and some cash, flipping profits are rising. We explain ahead. The exchange is back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. More than 100,000 restaurants have closed since the start of the pandemic. And while it's been a challenging year for the industry overall, the fast food stocks and delivery names have fared a lot better, especially the pizza chains. Shares of Papa John's have been among the top winners, with the stock up more than 200 percent from the March lows. Let's get more now on the state of the consumer and the future of the company with CEO Rob Lynch. Rob, it's good to have you. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. The biggest question hanging over a success story like yours and the others this year is what happens in 2021 if people go, I never want to eat a delivery pizza again? Well, I don't think I've ever heard those words before, Kelly. I think uh, pizza is here to stay (laughs) and Papa John's is going to continue to take care of our customers. If you heard today, we just launched our new stuffed crust, which is our biggest product launch in the history of the company. And it's going to hit, you know, our restaurants early next year and everybody is excited about taking care of our customers with that new product. Now, wait a minute, didn't Stuff Crunch uh, Crust launch at Domino's like in the 90s or something? Well, no, Domino's doesn't offer Stuff Crust, Pizza Hut does, but this is Papa John's crust stuffed. You know, our, our crust is really our reason for being. It is the, we make it fresh every day, never frozen, Six simple ingredients, no artificial colors, no artificial flavors, and now we've just put cheese in it. So that's the first time there's ever going to be crust like that, hand-stuffed at the restaurants every day. No, I am not a stuffed crust girl, but I, I take the marketplace's point that that's what people want. So here's my question. You guys have had such strong business this year. You've had to hire a ton of people at a time when a lot of different people are looking uh, for help with delivery and that sort of thing. What's that been like? What are your staffing needs like now? And are those people going to be kept on next year or do we know yet? For sure. You know, through the pandemic, our focus, 100% focus, has been on taking care of our customers, our employees, and our communities. It's been a challenging time for all of us. And I'm really proud of the fact that we've been able to hire almost 30,000 people during the pandemic, helping out the communities in need. And, you know, we're really bullish on next year, driven by innovations like Stuff Crust. And, uh, you know, our, our, our business continues to thrive. We'll continue to need more people and, and continue to create jobs for people in need. What would you say as someone who's in the delivery business yourself about the economics of a company like DoorDash and others? You know, what I would assume your model is superior, but at the same time, that's a big thing to directly employ that many uh, drivers. So what's the merits of your model versus those who outsource to a third party? You know, we do outsource uh, some of our business. We do leverage and partner with DoorDash and uh, Postmates and Uber Eats and all of the big aggregators. And we find it to be a really strategic partnership. The customers that come through those channels tend to be very incremental to our business. Um, they go to their platforms and they order our brand. We're actually one of the largest uh, brands on, on Uber Eats and, and DoorDash. So we think it's a strategic platform we're going to continue to leverage. We're going to benefit from their growth, and they're going to benefit from the great products that we bring to their customers. What's the top product order uh, during the pandemic? 
I mean, pepperoni pizza is always number one, but you know, the, the special product that we, two special products we launched this year, Papadillas, which are our handheld, uh, you know, folded pizzas as a sandwich, essentially. And then the Shakaroni, uh, that was a big win. Shakaroni, we partnered with Shaquille O'Neal and we raised over $3 million to give back to the communities that we serve. So I'm very happy with that. And we'll be bringing that again next year. Yeah, he's amazing. Uh, the brands that he chooses, the way he likes to partner with people, maybe direct the creative, uh, everything uh, from, from top to bottom. Rob, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Happy Rob holidays. Lynch is the CEO of Papa John's. You too. Coming up, 2020 was a great year for tech IPOs, which raised more than $38 billion. And there are plenty of high-profile names waiting in the wings that are expected to take the plunge in 2021. We'll tell you who and how that might go next. Plus, a global chip shortage is threatening production of everything from cars to TVs to smartphones. Why and who's being most impacted? That's ahead. Stay with us. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets about half past the hour. Dow is hanging on to about a four-tenths gain, up 127. S&P's up half a percent. NASDAQ up two-thirds. And as you can see across the sector board there, not a lot of consistency. Uh, it's not one of these value-on, value-off, momentum-on, momentum-off kind of days. You've got materials as the leadership up 1%. We've also got energy, one of the only two laggards down four-tenths. Communication services is the other one. Here are some of the individual movers. Shares of Rite Aid are sharply higher following an unexpected profit last quarter. Revenue also beat. The company's retail pharmacy and pharmacy services segment are among the tailwinds there. The shares are up nearly 12% today. And shares of Accenture are higher after beating on the top and bottom line. That consulting firm also raising its full-year forecast, so we're seeing some guidance, which is good. Demand for digital and cloud services continues to be a bright spot amid the pandemic. Accenture up 8%. And shares of MicroStrategy are moving higher as Bitcoin soars. Earlier this year, the software company began using its cash to buy Bitcoin. It's up 89% in three months, nearly 2% today, and the stock is on the smaller side with a market cap of just under $3 billion. Time now for our CNBC News update. Let's toss to Scott Wabner for that. Hi, Scott. Hi, Kel. Thanks so much. I'm Scott Wabner. Here's what's happening this hour. Home Depot agreeing to pay nearly $21 million in fines to settle charges. Its contractors violated rules on lead paint removal during home renovations, the biggest civil pen penalty ever under the Toxic Substances Control Act. 
In North Carolina, police say one officer was killed, another wounded, when a carjacking suspect opened fire on them. The suspect also killed. The city's police chief choked back emotion when talking about the 25-year-old fallen officer. There's no playbook for this. Concord Police Department is comprised of a resilient bunch. We're going to get through this. We're a big family. All right, tough story there. China says its mission to bring moon rocks back to Earth is a complete success. The probe carrying the precious cargo landed in northern China this morning. It is the first time samples from the moon have been retrieved in 44 years. That's our CNBC News update for this hour. Cal, I'll send it back to you. All right, Scott, thank you very much, Scott Wabner. We'll take a quick break. We're back after this. Uh, talk about the red-hot housing market, where it's not just buyers who are getting priced out. Uh, we'll explain the dynamics of the new way to flip homes. But first, never mind clothes or makeup. Some Instagram influencers are now being tapped to post about the COVID vaccine. Those details next in a couple minutes on The Exchange. Welcome back. It has been a super strong year for the tech IPO market with 65 companies making their debut since January, up from 49 a year ago. Investor appetite is also there with the companies raising nearly $40 billion this year for a 50% increase over last year. Will the rush continue into 2021 or are the delayed offerings of a firm and Roblox a sign of trouble? For that, I'm joined by Jessica Lesson, founder and editor-in-chief of The Information, which is out with its tech IPO preview for 2021. Jessica, it's great to see you. Welcome. I actually want to start with this rival of Peloton. What's it called that I haven't heard of? I wonder if that could be a a problem people go, I didn't know there was a rival to Peloton. You know, I think there are many rivals to Peloton, um, but uh, I'm not I'm not following that that one in particular, although I would be bullish because I'm bullish Peloton. But, um, you know, to answer your question, Kelly, I think it's still go time for the tech IPO markets into next year. Um, investors are chomping at the bit. For many of them, this is the the period they've been waiting for after a decade plus of illiquidity. Um, So we think there's a really robust pipeline. Yeah, and Icon is the one I was mentioning, but you're right. I mean, there's Mirror, you could say there's Apple Fitness. Anyway, we won't dwell on on Peloton per se. Um, But the one I'm also very, very interested in, I'm curious if you guys know if it's gonna come or not, is Stripe because they're doing some super interesting things in kind of the fintech uh, infrastructure space with shopping online. I mean, is Stripe one you think is pretty likely to go next year or could that still be a ways off? I think it could. Um, It's definitely one to watch. The thing about Stripe is it's really in control of its own destiny. And that decision is really going to come down to the Collison brothers around when they go and when they want to be public. But I think if you're looking at these valuations right now uh, in the public markets, you'd be silly to not take a serious look. And so, you know, Stripe is one on our list to closely watch other, obviously, fintech names. You mentioned um, a firm. I think Coinbase could be on the list. um, Many others as well. Um, I would not rule Stripe out for next year, though. And I, I wonder about Instacart, because that's a huge, I imagine, pandemic beneficiary and if they're someone who's thinking you know maybe we get out there while the story's still strong for us as opposed to once everybody's talking about reopening absolutely instacart is pretty along in its process we hear in getting out huge pandemic tailwinds 
you know, whether how sustainable that is, it's, it, we'll see. I think that's a big question hanging over the public markets right now in tech. I mean, look at DoorDash, um, you know, look at, I think, where you've seen these tailwinds, but how sustainable are they? Um, but Instacart is definitely one to watch. Um, huge boost and, you know, very solid model overall. Um, so I, I think they could have some very solid performance. And what about perhaps the most controversial one on the list? So I've saved it for last. It's Robinhood. I mean, every day now. They, today it was they paid a fine, I, I think, to one of the regulators. Yesterday it was Massachusetts going after them. And going public entails much closer scrutiny of their business model, which is what today's fine was about. Exactly. I mean, I think those are the questions. But then you look at the perspective of, you know, whether these companies go or not, it's about valuation. It's about relative valuation to the private markets. And if they're going to get money for cheaper um, from public investors who who frankly have, um, I think they're chomping at the, a bit, a little bit, the bit, it's um, there hasn't been a lot of new IPO in, uh, inventory. Everyone's looking for diversity from the things. And I think you're just, you know, that's behind these really, really top valuations that, that frankly have sent people here in Silicon Valley a little bit surprised. So, so I think that's the calculus in the boardroom. But, but surely these companies are going to get their act together. Um, no one wants to see another WeWork. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And it's amazing that as busy as it's been this year, we just showed all the names on your list, that there are so many more waiting in the wings. Uh, Jessica, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Jessica Lesson of The Information. Online influencers are known for selling products like clothes or Costco items or makeup, but now they're being hired to help promote COVID vaccines. Let's get to Julia Borson now with those details for us. Julia? Well, Kelly, social media influencers took to Instagram and TikTok to advocate for people to stay home and to wear masks. Now they're preparing to spread accurate information about vaccines. Influencer agency Zomad, which pairs smaller influencers with marketing dollars, has partnered with federal, state and local governments on COVID safety and now is working on vaccine campaigns. If you want to reach the under 35 crowd, this is the only way to do it. The under 35 crowd is notorious. They're not watching government officials doing press conferences. They're not watching TV. If they are, they've skipped through ads. And even digital media strategies don't work with that under 35 crowd with the older Gen Zs and the younger millennials. Zomad works with Lauren Cooper. She has about 30,000 followers on Instagram, and she was paid about $500 for two posts about wearing masks. Now, after losing her grandmother to COVID, she hopes to be paid to advocate for vaccines as well. I know a lot of people and a lot of my followers have um, expressed concern about the speed of which the vaccine was kind of done. Um, and I'm here to say that, you know, through the research um, and the information that's out there, it's really not scary. It's not just Zomad's smaller influencers. The Ad Council, which is known for creating Smokey the Bear, is putting together a new $50, $50 million vaccine campaign and will be briefing influencers, including some very big celebrities, on how to direct their followers to trusted vaccine content. Kelly? That's fascinating, Julia. And uh, I... My former neighbors have turned into a couple of TikTok influencers who we are talking about, you know, all this stuff around disclosure of, you know, when people send you products or if you're getting paid for it. And that would extend to COVID vaccines as much as it would to anything else. I'm curious on that note, TikTok is going to have like an, a live shopping event with Walmart. Uh, how does that work? And 
again, I, I granted this is how people are already out there kind of raising money and uh, and consuming content on TikTok, but uh, it's still pretty funny to think about. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a combination of a bunch of trends. One, we saw social media platforms make it very easy to purchase things this holiday season. Then you have the fact that there are influencers who are selling things on TikTok and Instagram. So today, Walmart announced that shopping on TikTok will be possible. They're doing an hour-long live stream. It's going to be kind of like a QVC or Home Shopping Network type thing, but you'll have influencers that are going to be showcasing fashions that you could buy at Walmart, and you'll be able to buy them within the TikTok platform. And that's the key thing. You won't have to leave and go to walmart.com. You'll be able to do it right within that streamed experience. So I think this kind of curated shopping with influencers really is going to be a trend that's going to definitely grow in the next year, Kelly. Yeah, from possibly being banned uh, to hosting Walmart shopping events. Uh, What a year for TikTok. Julia, thanks so much. Julia Borson for us today. Coming up, the global chip shortage, barking up the right tree, and millions depended on Amazon during the pandemic. So should their employees be considered essential? It's all coming up in rapid fire. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple headlines that should also be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the stories, Dominic Chu, Leslie Picker, and Michael Santoli. Welcome, everybody. First up, it's another pet IPO, or rather a pet SPAC this time. BarkBox, a subscription box service for dogs, announcing it plans to go public via a $1.6 billion merger with blank check company Northern Star Acquisitions. Shares will list on the NICE under, you guessed it, the ticker BARK. This says Needham named fellow pet player Chewy its top pick for 2021 and hiked its price target to 110 a share. It's just under 99 right now. Dom, what do you say? It's a 250% rise for Chewy. So it makes sense, perhaps, that some of the other pet care companies out there want to take advantage of a rising tide out there. It's not just COVID. A lot of folks out there have been spending more on their pets for years now. I'm one of those people who does it. I've got two dogs at home. I know that Mike Santoli's got pets at home as well. We're just one of the millions of Americans out there who continue to spend on pets. So it perhaps makes sense right now that you're trying to strike while the iron is hot. And yes, those are my two dogs right now. They're, they're, they're older now than they are in that photo. But still, they are some cute pups, which is why, Kelly, I continue to spend money on them. Leslie, what about the SPAC vehicle? So that's up about 20% today, indicating that the investors in that SPAC at least are excited by the prospect of getting into this space. Uh, And then new investors, of course, would come in and bid that thing higher. Uh, That's usually indicative of kind of the the investor sentiment surrounding these deals. As you know, Kelly, the SPACs don't typically move that much until a deal is announced. And then you can kind of see whether it's a a company that its investors are uh, approve of or perhaps one that they, you know, want to sell out of and aren't willing to stick around for a while to see that thing through. So clearly investors see this one uh, as a good deal, despite what I was surprised about, which is the $1.6 billion valuation on this company. Yeah, I mean, Mike, it's uh, it's everything the street loves. It's a, 
a reliable, you know, subscription service. It, it's Netflix. It's Adobe, yeah. right? Well, it's, actually, uh, what I think box. we have to decide about is BarkBox the stitch fix for dogs or is it the blue apron for dogs? Because those had very different investment <laughs> outcomes, uh, depending on which one of those you it's picked. A great point. It tells you a lot about the SPAC formula, which is tap into uh, something that's a, a very well-acknowledged trend, consumer trend, uh, also uh, something that has a good public comp that you want to sort of get a little bit of the halo effect from. Uh, and by the way, the SPAC mechanism is something that gets us and everybody talking about this in multiple stages. We wouldn't necessarily be here talking about a $1.6 billion private market acquisition uh, if it were not for the SPAC vehicle. And it <laughs> seems like this quasi-IPO thing, right? It's not, it's not the way it used to be. Because you just have to throw enough absurd elements together. You've got a SPAC. You've got a subscription box service for dogs. You've got holiday pet spending up 21%. You've got a pandemic, Mike. I mean, you've got, you've got a story, a, my friend. And you've got a, you've got a pronounceable ticker symbol, uh, you know, in, in right? dog and human language, bark. bark. Yeah. Hey, guys, I mean, is anybody <laughs> well, else wondering if this is like this generation's direct listing? Do direct listings even exist anymore? Why do it if you can just do it through a SPAC, right? Yeah, whatever the hot new thing is, yeah. uh, as Leslie knows. Well, these guys need capital usually, right, Leslie? The flip Leslie? side is, yeah, yeah it's dilution. Uh, yeah, that would be the, the, the only downside, I guess, to a SPAC versus a direct listing is uh, the dilution aspect, the fact that you have to pay a promote to the people who manage the SPAC. You, and the expenses involved as well. You're looking at, uh, you know, perhaps 7% for the underwriter fee and then transaction fee. And so it gets expensive. And still, it's up 20% today, so that's the verdict from the street. Bring on BarkBox, I guess. All right, let's move along, talk about a much more serious story, which is if you're pl planning on buying a laptop, better do it right now because a global chip shortage is reportedly leading to production delays for many of the gadgets we use every day. This includes not just laptops. We're talking about other kinds of computers, cars, uh, everything else the chips go into, all of this because consumer demand has been so strong. Manufacturers are warning supply chain issues could delay shipments by weeks or even months. Analysts say there's a host of problems that have led to the chip shortage, including widespread lockdowns, bulk buying by Huawei after it was hit with sanctions, and a fire at a Japanese chip plant. Dom, is this just going to blow over or not? It will blow over eventually because every time there's been a, a, a supply disruption in this kind of an industry, especially with computer chips, it's been kind of rectified through more capacity and kind of resolutions to some of these supply chain bottlenecks. The real issue is whether or not you have this consumer kind of tilt and focus because of the demand for things like tablet computers and PCs from COVID really driving some of the pricing. It's arguably one of the reasons why you're already seeing prices elevated for the stocks of many of these companies. We know that the semiconductor ETF, the main one that we watch that tracks it, is already near, at or near record highs. Many of the largest components are there as well. So it's maybe already reflected in there right now, but it just goes to show you that there is pricing leverage and pricing power for computer chip makers right now until there's a real catch up in supply, right? And, and we don't see it anytime really soon, soon, but it's gonna rectify itself at some yeah. point. What would you add, Mike? Well, simply that, you know, is there a more essential commodity than than chips right now in the in the world. You know, we have, you know, more oil than you need. Uh, the supply chain is relatively tight at times uh, when it comes to semiconductors. And it shows you, uh, as Dom said, why the stocks have been so strong. Also, low inventories across a lot of physical goods has been one of the bullish stories for the global economy next year. You're going to get some kind of a snapback effect. Obviously, that's going to be true when it comes to chips. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, well, there's not a lot of demand at movie theaters right now. U.S. theater chains could reportedly slash ticket prices for Warner Brothers movies to as little as three bucks and keep the bulk of profits for themselves, too. 
Uh, it's interesting. Industry sources told The Hollywood Reporter that theater owners are considering this move in retaliation for Warner Media's decision to release its upcoming films on HBO Max the same day they hit theaters. This includes Wonder Woman 1984, set to debut on Christmas Day. It's been a rough year for theater chains. AMC down about 60 percent this year and recently warned it could run out of cash by the end of this month. Leslie, you know, other than the drama of the back and forth here, you also have HBO Max, you know, working to make to get on Roku and doing so just in time uh, so that everybody can watch this uh, stream this movie when it comes out. It's a fascinating battle, Kelly, because you look at really who has the leverage and who believes they have the leverage in this industry. I, I can't imagine walking up to a, a box office when everything returns to normal and asking, you know, how much would it cost to see this movie versus this movie? And then, I don't know, do you choose the movie based on which one costs $5 in here in New York? I mean, it can cost as much as, you know, $18 to see a movie back in the, the yesteryear. So it's a fascinating, uh, you know, next step in this process whether it works and you know even if you do take home 80% of the revenue from a $5 ticket my guess is during the pandemic you're not really getting the volume that you would need to be sustainable at those prices so i kind of wonder how the economics really work from a movie movie theater standpoint yeah. And Mike, I wonder, I mean, do you really want to poke the bear right now? Yeah. You know, can these theaters really afford to get, to upset HBO any further? Or is it that they can't afford not to? Well, I, I agree that it's an, an odd time to do it. And it's a big bet because, you know, Warner is only saying that this is going to be their plan for 2021. So if you're a theater owner and you actually think that the in-person theater experience is going to be something people are going to be wanting to pay for down the road in the long term, the next year, presumably Warner's going to have a, a slate of movies you're going to want to show. Uh, and or did you just kind of provoke them by, you know, down, uh, downgrading their, the, the price of their movies? I, I think it's a very risky uh, bet right now. And it seems like one made out of kind of emotion and spite and not really long term calculation. Exactly. Um, still, we'll see. They might just feel at this point as though they have so little to lose uh, yeah. that they've got to do what they can. All right. Finally, today, Amazon is working to get to the head of the vaccine line. Amazon requesting that its warehouse, data center and Whole Foods workers all be designated as essential. They're saying its frontline employees have helped get consumers necessary products throughout the pandemic and argue its status as the second largest employer in the U.S. should give it priority. They're on a growing list of companies, including Uber and DoorDash, that have pleaded with the CDC for the same access. And we should have a decision shortly as the same panel that assigned the first wave of vaccinations is expected to vote soon on who should receive the next round. Dom, it seems to me if we're going to lob monopoly claims and antitrust claims at Amazon, that the flip side of that coin is then they are essential. Uh, it feels a lot like, I mean, we did this, a similar story on, on Uber and Lyft, right? Some of these ride sharing companies saying that their employees should be categorized as essential as well because they are providing essential services like food delivery and in some cases transportation in those markets that, that can actually do it. I, I guess this is a big deal here because it really does suggest that we have changed our habits as a society here in the U.S., especially given the COVID pandemic. It remains to be seen whether some of these work from home and, and stay at home trends keep up there. But one thing we're all doing more of is ordering online and having it delivered to our steps. And if that is the case, there is a strong argument to be made that those types of delivery employees, not just at Amazon and warehouse workers, but also FedEx employees and UPS employees and Postal Service and everybody else out there in transportation logistics, yeah. they are all deemed essential for our well-being as a country. The issue, Mike, is, I mean, 
even if they are, we just said they're the second biggest employer in this country. Is there enough vaccine to go around? I was going to say, by the time it becomes relevant to make this call, there are so many Amazon employees, and presumably it would have to apply to employees of other companies in very similar roles, that it's at the moment when you're in the mass distribution phase. And, and sure, I think it makes sense that Amazon would jockey for a slightly better position in line, uh, you know, on behalf of their employees and also to make things easier operationally for them. But, yeah, I just don't think it's it's like they're not going to be next. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, you're still waiting, you know, four months or five months as opposed to, you know, four weeks or five weeks. That to me, to me is, is the calculus. Last word to you, Leslie. I think I think Mike's right there. It's a matter of, uh, you know, weeks. It's hard to really, uh, you know, say who's essential, how to draw the line. Different corporations, of course, they're going to jockey for their employees to be toward the beginning of that line. And then the question becomes, you know, do you mandate your employees to get vaccinated, especially if you work so hard to receive priority access to these vaccines? Then as an employee, are you are you mandated to actually get one? Yeah, Amazon may get it. And I don't want to upset the pet owners, but BarkBox probably should not. We'll leave it there for today, guys. Dom Chu, <laughs> Leslie Picker, and Michael Santoli. Thank you all very, very much. House flipping could be on the verge of flopping thanks to high prices and low supply, but there are still some hot spots across the country. We'll tell you where next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app anytime. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Housing continues to be a bright spot, <coughs> excuse me, as mortgage rates hit another record low last week. It makes it the 15th record low of 2020. But if you're looking to cash in, flipping homes has become harder than it used to be. Diana Olick has more for us. Hi, Diana. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, home flipping dropped overall in the third quarter of this year, but gross profits for those who did flip soared to the highest level in 20 years. And that's according to Adam Data Solutions. It tallied that just over 57,000 U.S. homes were flipped in the corner. That's a home that was bought and sold in the same 12-month period. Those flips represented just over 5% of all home sales, which is down from nearly 7% in Q2. The drop likely due to the severe shortage of homes for sale, especially on the lower end of the market where flippers like to play. The median price of a flipped home, $240,000. Now, here's the fun part. The gross profit on the typical flip, that's the difference between what you pay and what you sell for, rose to $73,766. That is up from 61800 a year ago. Now, this does not include flipping costs like repairs and renovations that you're going to do. Now, the gross profit was the highest since 2000 and a 44% return on the investment. Looking locally, investors saw the biggest annual increases in flipping profit margins in Raleigh, Phoenix, Kansas City, Missouri, and Las Vegas. The smallest profit margins were in Boulder, Colorado, Corpus Christi, Texas, Hilton Head, South Carolina, Reno, Nevada, and Killeen, Texas. Now, while the majority of flippers do use cash, low mortgage rates have th made things a lot more competitive for them. Kelly? It's, fasc it's fascinating that mortgage rates haven't gone up, Diana, even as rates have creeped up. Yeah, well, you heard from the Fed yesterday that they continue to buy mortgage-backed bonds, and that is just going to keep rates low for the foreseeable future. 
having a huge impact those purchases are uh, in ways that we should mention more often. Diana, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Diana Olick on the changing dynamics in housing for us. That does it for the exchange today. But up next on Power Lunch, shares of Moderna are climbing higher today as its COVID vaccine is poised to get emergency use authorization from the FDA. They're up about three and a half percent. A doctor from Kaiser Permanente, which helped facilitate these clinical trials, will join us to discuss. I'll see you with Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.